Welcome to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf Podcast, where we explore the diversity of Arctic knowledge. In this podcast, we amplify the voices of scholars and experts from around the world to make the Arctic easy and accessible to everyone. So tune in and join our in-depth conversations that take you beyond the headlines and right into the latest ideas, challenges and experiences from the Arctic. Hello everyone and welcome to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf Podcast. I am Romain Chiffard and I'm your host today. With us on the podcast today, we have the privilege to have Dr. Paola Catapano. Paola has worked at CERN, the European Organization for Nuclear Research in Geneva, for the past 25 years, where she currently leads the CERN audiovisual production section. Paola is also a science journalist, an Arctic and Antarctic reporter, and Polar Quest expedition manager. She has extensive first-hand experience with producing engaging communication products conveying complex scientific contents, from particle physics to cosmology to environmental sciences to a range of diverse audiences. She has hosted, written and produced a wide range of video products, from short clips to live events, animations, entire TV program and science documentaries, some of which were even awarded international prizes. Paola's passion is to disseminate science to the widest possible audience, and she's here on the podcast today to talk about her latest project called Polar Quest 2021, sponsored by Blanks, a scientific expedition to Svalbard that took place earlier this summer. Blanks is also sponsoring this special episode of the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf podcast, and here is a few words from them. The Arctic Institute Bookshelf Podcast is proudly brought to you by our sponsor, Blanks, the industry leader in non-abrasive whitening toothpaste using 100% natural Arctic lichens. It all started 30 years ago, when Italian scientists visited a small town in Iceland, where locals used lichen to clean their teeth. Lichens are plant organisms with natural antibacterial properties that can help fight plaque and power bright and healthy smiles. Blanks wants to protect the territories it comes from. To celebrate their 30th anniversary, Blanks has launched the Save the Arctic White campaign and is partnering with the Arctic Institute and Polar Quest to research and communicate about the Arctic's most pressing challenges, ice melt and pollution. Learn more by visiting blanks.com and click on Save the Arctic White. Paola, welcome to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf podcast. Thank you, Roman. I'm glad to be here. All right. So let's start from the beginning. So you are the project leader of a an expedition to Svalbard called Polar Quest. And I was just wondering, uh, why did you become interested in the Arctic in the first place? Yes, as a science journalist, um, uh, obviously, you cannot ignore um, the crucial role of the, of the poles, Arctic and Antarctica. Um, and uh, um, also I'm, I'm a person who, who likes the outdoor a lot. And with my job at CERN, I don't have much opportunity to be outdoor. I communicate about a particle accelerator that is buried 100 meters below ground and is 27 kilometers long. And uh, um, I communicate uh, with passion about, um, about physics and cosmology. But I miss the outdoors. So I took the opportunity of uh, a moment when I had a saved leave to 
to apply to be the accompanying journalist to the Italian expedition to Antarctica in 2006. And I was selected and uh, I, I, I was there for two months. I visited many scientific bases. I participated in the um, oceanographic campaign on board of an icebreaker. And that was it. And uh, since then, I always wanted to, to get back. So I had the opportunity to get back, but not to Antarctica, unfortunately, but to the Arctic. Um, in 2014, doing a, a reportage, a docu-reportage for Italian TV on the Italian scientific base, which is in Neolism Svalbard, uh, the closest land uh, to the North Pole, uh, at least uh, reachable with not too much difficulty because Svalbard has uh, the stream, uh, the Gulf Stream that makes its west coast uh, much warmer compared to the high latitudes. And once I, I got there, I thought much more as, as people who, who communicate science to the public to make them aware of the fragility and the importance of the polar regions. And for that reason, I created an association called Polar Quest with the specific purpose of organizing uh, small scale scientific expeditions, but that also communicate the research. I knew also about the need for many scientists to take part in field research and that it was very difficult for scientists, researchers to get always a position on board of formal, uh, formally organized expeditions on big icebreakers. So uh, there was this idea to go there with a sailboat. I'm a sailor. And it all came about altogether. So my first expedition there with the Polar Quest was on the occasion of um, the Airship Italia um, anniversary, 90th anniversary in 2018. I consider Airship Italia to be uh, the first real uh, scientific lab with a specific purpose to study the Arctic, uh, at least from the air and then to land there. And that expedition dramatically uh, crashed on the ice pack. And then there was a, a, a big story of rescue, international effort to rescue the survivors. And then some who did not survive, who, whose mystery is still buried in the Arctic somewhere. So that was for sort of the inspiration, but especially it was very crucial to raise enough funds to be able to put together a um, scientific expedition to the Arctic in, uh, in, in that year to celebrate. And it was an enormous success. We produced two documentaries, and while we were projecting uh, one of the documentaries in Italy at an Arctic festival, I was approached by Blanks, who asked me, are you organizing another expedition? And frankly, we had talked about that, but it was the middle of pandemia. We, we, we didn't think it could be possible to organize another expedition. But with the invitation of Blanks, I couldn't say no. I said, oh, yes, of course, we always organize expeditions. So once I stopped talking with, uh, with them, I just put the phone down and uh, we had a urgent meeting with my associates and we are all volunteers by the way nobody's paying uh, we had we we try to raise funds and to these are really small scale expedition not very expensive and we put together another expedition to Svalbard again this year also with the aim of going back to the areas where the airship crashed which we reached in 2018 but at the, at the time we didn't have uh, a good enough instrument to, to look for the wreck. This time we had a good enough instrument, but there was too much ice in the area. We couldn't reach it, but this is the Arctic. It's mm. still adventure. It's still some, somewhere where you, you plan to go, you create an itinerary, but you know from the beginning that uh, you have to adjust and optimize day by day. Uh, that's a place where nature is, uh, is master. Nature decides and you just have to obey to nature. And that's also part of the beauty and the attraction 
to those regions that I, that I feel very strongly. Could you talk a bit more about Polar Quest 2021 and mm-hmm. the aim of the expedition to, to Svalbard? Because I saw that you had many, many ongoing projects with this expedition. So sample, sampling, mapping. Could you talk to us a tiny bit more about this as well? Please? Sure, sure. So we had we had the four main scientific projects. Um, the, the, the most the heaviest one to carry out, actually, the most difficult and which we fully succeeded to carry out was the uh, environmental DNA. Um, so we had two scientists on board, a senior and a junior, who were off to um, collect samples from the water, seawater, at different um, depths and uh, uh, in specific contexts. In particular, we were looking for a fjord in an uninhabited area uh, with a glacier, uh, terminating into the sea. So Svalbard is full of those. Uninhabited it is, uh, just beyond the 79 parallel, there's nobody, not, not even a small community uh, living there. And in particular, after two, two years of uh, confinement, uh, the, it's more uninhabited than usual. Even tourists and other expeditions are not there. So we went uh, for this, we identified uh, uh, Three, three potential candidates as fjords. As I said, you can never bet on where you could reach. And we were lucky enough to reach the most difficult one to reach, the Lady Franklin Fjord. It is an area that is completely uncharted. So you cannot go there with a traditional uh, ship. Uh, and our, our sailboat was perfect. Um, we used Best Explorer. It's a glorious uh, sailboat with two big nautical records. It's um, one of the two in the world that managed to circumnavigate the article uh, from the North uh, West Passage and the Northeast Passage. It did both at different seasons, but it did both sail. And it has the particularity that it, it doesn't have a big draft. It has just one and a half meter draft. It has a mobile keel, which is essential to go into Lady Franklin because Lady Franklin uh, expected, uh, simulated depth measurements tell you that there are lots of shallows but uh, uh, we measured the unexpected. We measured as shallow as three meters deep. Uh, in the, and it's very close to another area that like maybe five meters before re- reaching this shallow, you have 30 meters under your boat. And then all of a sudden you have four meters, three meters. So we, we could uh, go as close as possible to the glacier, 300 meters from it. Uh, the glacier was breaking off continuously. Luckily, we had uh, a good three days of good weather because that was rare. This year, the Arctic was was really in its uh, worst situation in the summer, at least in 2018, we had much better weather. We had uh, fog and and, um, and stormy stormy winds and, and winds on our nose and uh, uh, unorderly waves around us for most of the campaign, but those three days in Lady Franklin was blessed with the fantastic blue skies and uh, no wind. So we could really scan. We could do our five stations, actually even a sixth one outside the fjord, off in the sea. And uh, each station lasted 18 hours. So it was quite tough uh, collecting uh, the samples of water at different depths with the uh, Niskin bottles, huge bottles and uh, uh, looking for traces of eDNA, environmental DNA. Environmental DNA is DNA that is, uh, shat- uh, that is like spread off in the environment by any living organism. And it is considered to be um, one of the parameters to monitor the evolution of biodiversity and the impact 
of climate change on biodiversity. So uh, before before sampling the water, you have to measure all the parameters of the water, like its salinity, the temperature, and so on and so forth. And then you collect your samples and you put them aside. And then we also did, at the same time as these stations, uh, we collected greenhouse gases samples, both from the water and from the atmosphere. So we were really measuring the sea and the glacier uh, uh, in all its uh, basic parameters. The analysis is the subject of a master's thesis that is being carried out by the student who was on board with us um, at ETHZ, the Polytechnical School of Zurich, who, um, in collaboration with Geneva University, developed uh, a new um, tracer to to analyze um, environmental DNA. So the DNA of species that live in the sea or go through the sea uh, without having an impact on the species. Usually, if you want to study DNA of a species, you have to take their blood or you have to take, if it's a microorganism, the microorganism and bring it home and look at it under the, your, your microscope and analyze. In this case, it's completely non-invasive and is extremely efficient because you could even carry out the analysis on board because they have a portable analysis system, which you couldn't have because it was taken by a, another expedition. But... Uh, our samples are now traveling from Svalbard to Zurich, and they will be analyzed. And uh, I, I expect that uh, already by three months' time, we could see the first results. This was a big project, and uh, it's very satisfactory to have been able to carry it out in Lady Franklin Fjord at, on the 80th parallel, actually. We were 80 degrees north and 15 minutes. So it was, we are very proud of this. I'm curious, between PIFA's expedition in 2018 and this expedition in 2021, have you noticed, apart from the weather, which was kind of different, but have you noticed actual Arctic changes? Or have oh, you noticed yeah. that the area is actually changing faster than what we think? Absolutely. Uh, this was the bad news, actually. <laughs> um, there are many things that I could compare. One thing that really struck me strongly was Magdalena Fjord. Magdalena Fjord is uh, around the 79th parallel, uh, just above Niolazun, where you have the research bases. And it's a place where, which is normally within the reach of, of tourist boats. Uh, so they consider the, the, the jewel of Svalbard. It's actually not the most beautiful, because if you have a chance to circumnavigate the archipelago, as we did in 2018, and go beyond the 80th parallel, as we did this year too, you can see uh, marvelous things that the tourists don't get to see. But Magdalena, of course, it's a beautiful location. But already in 2018, the glacier retreat was extremely visible because they leave a, a gray mark on the mountains. You see the mountains and you see the mark where there was a glacier and now there's no longer a glacier. It's gray, but it's not the same gray. It's a lighter gray compared to the rest of the, of the, of the color of the mountain. And uh, um, in 2018, it was still a very beautiful place. Now it's a bleak place. It's true, the weather conditions were different again. We were there, we are the only boat. There were two, one sailboat there that had been staying, it was private Norwegians, that has been staying there for like four days waiting to get out because the sea out was very bad. And they were asking us, oh, how big are the waves out there? Can you tell us? Can we can we go? And then we there was also a tourist boat, but a, a bigger one, um, Norwegian tourist boat that were, were 
radiating us from the outside, say, can we come into the fjord? How bigger the waves? Can we anchor there? Uh, but and the, the sky was not as clear as in 2018. But the marks of the glacier, my God, there was basically no ice left. There was just a few streaks of white on these mountains that used to be super white with uh, cobalt blue waters and an amazing contrast with some of the dark mountains that you could see in summer. Now it was just dark mountains and some streaks of ice. So that was really, you could see the, the feedback effect of, of global warming under your eyes. And it's, it was very discouraging, depressing. And you don't feel well. You don't feel well when, when you are confronted with such a scene. Then, of course, uh, um, being very close to glaciers, we, we were uh, bombarded by the sound, like a thunderbolt sound, of uh, breaking off glaciers and calving from, from the mountain uh, and, and advancing and keeping going forward. That was also another sign uh, of the change. And then in Longyearbyen, Longyearbyen is the sort of capital of, of, the, of the Svalbard. And uh, there were a lot of signs of, of thawing, worrying thawing of the permafrost. You could see uh, all the gutter tubes out of the earth and uh, a lot of um, construction work to support uh, buildings because they are all built on pillars, and usually these pillars are kept stable by the permafrost. There is, of course, a, a layer of permafrost that thaws every, every summer and freezes back again in autumn. But this time, uh, the permafrost that, that thaws is every year deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper surface. So the, all the buildings in Longyearbyen were, were undergoing support work, and some of the buildings had to be evacuated because they, they, they were basically not in, uh, inhabitable anymore because of the, this layer of permafrost thawing uh, much more than, than it should be, much more than it has for years and years, for decades. Another very visible sign uh, was is, is the global seed vault. The global seed vault is, is or doomsday vault, where they, they keep more than 4 million seeds of all the plants that we use for feeding the planet just in case there was a nuclear war or there was a, a big uh, worst scenario of climate change and warming, they considered uh, that area in Svalbard to be uh, completely reliable and lasting for 200 years and, and, and going even surviving this kind of disasters. But that, that's not true. The expectations were too high because the permafrost there thawed. And uh, in 2017, there were so, so many heavy rains that they had to rebuild the vault uh, to keep the seeds uh, away from the water. And uh, they, they are kept at uh, minus 18. As a, uh, it, it was, it used to be a temperature that, that is a natural average temperature with very little, very little intervention. You could keep this temperature constant through the, throughout the year because it's a 125 tunnel dug into the mountains, into the permafrost. But because of the heavy rains, uh, and the, the accelerated thaw uh, of the permafrost. It was a disaster and they rescued most of the seeds and they now repaired and dug even deeper into the permafrost. But you see, nothing is um, guaranteed. We are definitely, Svalbard is the place where you could see the acceleration of the, war, or the warming uh, really under your eyes. And it, it's extremely 
disastrous for the species, for, for that very fragile environment, which is yet uh, so important to keep a balanced climate in our hemisphere. Yeah, it's it's a bleak prospect when whenever you're into Arctic research, it's always very it's not very hopeful. <laughs> that's that's not. I mean, and as a science communicator, I wonder how do you find hope and how do you communicate this hope for people to to act and to do something about the Arctic. There is no choice. <laughs> there is no choice because um, we still have. Uh, Arctic, we still have a North Pole there, uh, we still have uh, wonderful species like polar bears, uh, endless birds and, um, and seals that live in this environment, whales, we were blessed, we were blessed by on the last day, um, the sun was be- beginning to be low, there was a fantastic golden light on the, on the fjord of Longyearbyen, and the East Fjord, and and all of a sudden, when we arrived, it was our really last day. We were coming back from the expedition from 26 days at sea. And what we see around us, more than 20 whales. They were fin whales, so they're quite big. It's the second biggest um, animal of the family. They were bigger than the boat. And they were singing and spraying seawater and very gently and harmoniously jumping into the sea around us that we were completely blessed by it, it looked like where am i in a in a disney movie and this is the arctic this is the arctic how it should be where these species they are bigger than our boat but our boat did not move they were jumping all around us going under and reappearing on the other side not leaving a single trace in the water, not making waves at all. And they are huge animals. It was just enchanting. And this gives you a lot of hope. This kind of scene gives you a lot of hope. And even in 2018, at the last day, we saw a family of polar bears on an iceberg in the Hornsund Bay. The mother had just got a a baby seal. The the youngest cub was eating the seal. And the iceberg where they were a piece chunked off with a small baby and the small baby was crying and the mom just didn't care about him because he was being fed and then she rolled in the in the snow and they just didn't even look at us i mean the mother saw us she approached the edge of the iceberg and smelled we were 15 meters on our sail but we didn't we didn't feel threatened in spite of this uh, polar bear training and the weapon training that you have to have before you leave an expedition we just felt one with nature. We were spectator. They were our hosts. We were their guests. They were not harming us. They were not. They were actually showing us their best. And this puts put puts you in peace and in harmony with nature. And the message is: we are part of this nature. We are not the dominant species. These bears could kill us in one second, but they don't, because they have a seal. There is still ice where they can hunt from and move around. And that that's harmony. And nature can be harmonious if everyone stays in their niche and does what they have to do. We should stop producing and polluting uh, with plastic, the, the seas. We should stop over-exploiting um, the, the fisheries of our planet. We should stop thinking that we are dominant and we can do whatever we want in our home. This planet is our home. And I guess we all like to have a home that is tidy and it, it can last long. 
and is not damaged. But we as a species are the only ones who are really doing a lot of damage to, to the planet, to our only home in the solar system and beyond, as far as we know so far. So that's the, the, the message we have to... There is a lot of beauty still, and everything is not lost, but uh, we have to act now for this everything that is not lost to, to, to stay with us uh, for, a, for yet a long time to go. That was the message of hope I was hoping for, I think. Uh, <laughs> but also, I think it's, it's difficult as a scientist or as a researcher to do the research and then to translate the research into something that can be digested by the broader public. How do you do that? And how do you try to reach out beyond the scientific community? Yeah, that's a different role, exactly. So on board, that's the specificity of, of our association of PolarQuest. We are a group of scientists, yes, researchers, but they are as important as the science communicators and the explorer adventurers who man and organize the expeditions. Each of us have their role. Of course, the scientists have to be available to share their work, the, the ones we had on board this time were extremely collaborative. Uh, they never said no when we wanted to re record interviews with them. Uh, we had a cameraman on board who was constantly filming what they were doing and uh, taking everything we're saying, and they were always collaborative uh, and accepted. So uh, at the same time as, uh, as uh, running the expedition, we were communicating on our social media channel. We were communicating uh, through our sponsor blanks and the institutes that um, were responsible for the research, they were also communicating. That's, uh, that's extremely important and we'll keep communicating. We will probably also uh, produce another documentary based on this expedition as well, uh, because every expedition is different. And uh, every time you go to the Arctic, you always find something that you had not seen the time before. And it is so extraordinary that you want to share with everyone. So it's super important to go in parallel and and trust the communications to, to communication specialists as well. So I saw that you had, as you said, a filmmaker on board, that you had a very large crew on the ship. What's it's like to travel to the Arctic with such a large crew? It was a tiny vessel and a tiny crew compared to the traditional ways of doing research uh, in polar regions. Uh, we had a 51 feet sailboat that uh, has been built especially to sail in, in polar waters because it has a, a, a steel hull that can resist some thin ice, not big icebergs. Those would be threatening for it. But it has a special keel and it's equipped with all the instruments that you need for navigating, for instance, with the permanent fog. We crossed the Barents Sea with four days of, uh, of four-meter visibility because of the fog and uh, very bad seas. And before finding this favorable window, we had to wait for 10 days in Tromso before we could depart. 10 people on board, plus the scientific equipment, plus all the provisions, because you, when, you, when you sail in Svalbard, you have to be completely autonomous in terms of uh, um, anything you need, from the food to the water to the energy, because there is nowhere where you can resupply the ship. So uh, we were very full. <laughs> And um, but one could imagine ah, there might be tensions because of lack of space uh, or because we have to ration the water. We cannot have a shower. Uh, we really have to go slowly with 
everything also with uh, heating this this boat was heated and the the Nanook boat we had in 2018 was not but it was uh, pass built passively so it had a very big uh, surface to keep the warmth inside but uh, there is a, a sort of fight for the resources and so on but what helps is that you are alone and you know that anything outside the boat is hostile environment where survival is not guarantee on the contrary where we are in constant dangers of death because if you fall in the water it's uh, minus two and you become immediately um, uh, in, in hypothermia you, you get hypothermia immediately so you cannot move and you drown or if you don't drown in any case you have like maximum 50 minutes to survive and you better not fall that's the thing to, to avoid and the boat is the only anchor of uh, of life that you have is your nest is the place where you can live and you can function normally uh, as a human being in an arctic environment so you very very quickly become adjusted to sharing the space and also the people you are with are the only people you will see for days and days so even if we not of not of us not all of us had met except on zoom <laughs> It went fantastically well since day one because we had the same purpose. Those who wanted to study the Arctic, those who wanted to tell about the Arctic and those who wanted to explore the Arctic, we all had the same goal and we were all sharing the same passion because you have to be a bit adventurous in order to to decide to spend from four to six weeks uh, isolated in a, in a sailboat uh, uh, with not necessarily friendly conditions uh, outside, actually. The opposite is more likely than, than anything else. So that makes it work. It's a sort of natural selection, I would say. How, how did you select the crew? Did you <clears throat> pick members uh, or scientists or researchers who had previous, previous experience in going to the Arctic or previous experience going to expeditions? Well, it, it doesn't, selection is not really the word because we, we don't select. We, as, a, as an association, we, we just address the scientific institutions and say, would you be interested to send a scientist uh, to Svalbard this year. Uh, we are going uh, from this period to this period. This is a sailboat. We can do research. And they select, the, the, the scientific institutes select the scientists. And uh, uh, of course, the senior scientists, she had taken part in many campaigns in Antarctica, but she had never been to Svalbard. And uh, the junior scientist, uh, he was a um, an undergraduate who learned just like two weeks before departure that he was, but he's an environmental science student. So by definition, he had joy to go there. And the, the other scientists, uh, they came with the instruments they needed. We needed an expert in sonar in order to do the bathymetry. And the sonar company uh, have collaborators. He came from the University of Gdansk in Poland. So we had never seen him before, uh, only on Zoom. Uh, the Swiss scientists I met because we are based in Switzerland, so we met them. But uh, the Polish scientists we didn't know. Um, the cameraman I had only met on Zoom as well. And he's somebody who wanted to do a documentary about the airship, Italia, and um, uh, the rescue expeditions. Uh, so he, he learned that we were going to those areas. I told him there is no guarantee that we reached the the area so if you want to come 
I'll give you the place on board in exchange for the images, and he came. So it's not really a selection process in the in the strict term. And then one of our a member of our association is the scientific coordinator, is a geographer, an expert in the history of the airship, and he is an expert also in drone mapping in 3D. So he came uh, with his drone and um, to map the the uncharted uh, uh, coast and islands that he said. Wherever we go beyond the eight, it, everything is uncharted. So anywhere we go, it's fine for me. And so that that made the crew. And then I had, of course, my two associates, Mike and Kevin, who, who make the expedition happen. Kevin supports the scientists with the field activity, and Mike uh, organizes the whole logistics of the whole expedition. In addition to being a drone pilot himself, so he also worked for the three D mapping. He did uh, some flights over Hansoya, which is a uh, an island uh, uh, around the 80, much beyond the 80th, between the 80th and the 81st parallel that uh, had never been mapped. Only satellite, very approximate maps exist, and we mapped it in, the, in 3D. I never encountered a problem in any of the expeditions I took part in, in the ones that we organized, but also the ones that were in which I was a guest uh, journalist. People who go there are all like-minded, and they cannot understand why one shouldn't go there, and it can you cannot say no, but Sometimes when we when we show our films or or present our activities to a big public, you have two kind of responses. 50-50. Some say, oh, I would die to go there with you. And some say, I would never put my foot on a boat like that, <laughs> in a place like that. I would be too afraid, too cold, uh, too uncomfortable. It's true that sometimes you suffer a bit of the uncomfort of the sea and so on, but then it's easy, quickly forgotten. And what you what you bring home is just uh, this fascination for the Arctic and this uh, this need to share with everyone. Please, let's keep it as it is because it's so crucial for the rest of the planet. I've heard this feeling, so I've never been, but I've heard this feeling is even bigger when you go to the Antarctic, where actually you take a lot of pictures and you just like, oh yeah, wow, Antarctica is, is amazing. Did you have that feeling with Antarctica as well? Antarctica was like going to a different planet. Antarctica makes you change uh, in your daily reaction to where you are. As soon as you get away from the coast, you are in a continent. I was flying over um, from, from Baia Terranova, which is the Ross Sea, from the coastal Italian base to Concordia, which is in the middle of the plateau. And uh, you fly for hours and hours and hours, and there is just white. And the enormous glacier that from the plane already look enormous. But I've been, I go often to the Alps. I, 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 I go on excursions. Uh, around glaciers in the Alps, but it's tiny. These are whole countries size uh, glaciers, and there is no living being, and there hasn't been for millions of years, and that's even more hostile than the, than Antarctica than than the Arctic because you in Concordia, for instance, in summer you have minus fifty five, so it is a different planet. You you have and and my reaction was I feel much more alive than here because you need all your senses alive to survive there and you cannot afford any distraction so i my the feeling i i still keep from antarctica that i never felt anywhere else is i am totally there alive with all the senses not just to absorb this unique environment but also just to keep surviving <laughs> to be to be careful 
and it's somehow a thrill. It's a some, somehow excitement, but it's it's really different. I, I guess it's the feeling uh, if you discover a new planet, you open your uh, your spacecraft and get off and put your foot for the first time on a, on another planet. I, I guess it's the same feeling Antarctica. It's totally different. The Arctic has a history. There's lots of animals, fantastic, uh, all around you. Some are some are even accustomed. They're not afraid. We, we there was a, a seal that was following us uh, very closely. We were on land and it was approaching, approaching. We saw polar bears. In Antarctica, it's not the case. Of course, on the coast and during the oceanographic campaign, yes, you see a lot of animals. And uh, I've been stranded for two hours uh, in the middle of a um, Adelie penguin colony. <laughs> there were like a million of them <laughs> and birds trying to catch their puppies. <laughs> so it's an, but that's the coast. When you, when you go a bit inside, Oh, it's thrilling and scary at the same time. I was there as a selected uh, guest journalist to document the um, the 26th Italian-French scientific expedition to Antarctica. So I produced four documentaries for Italian TV, a lot of uh, a lot of articles, uh, diaries for uh, monthly science popularization magazines and dailies plus i had a program with some primary schools so i was there for two months and i was busy night and day because there is no night in antarctica in january and february and um yeah it was december through january mid-december through january till the end of january so i i was super busy i was basically never sleeping <laughs> but it's an unforgettable experience the Arctic is easier because we live in the northern hemisphere and it's not that distant from inhabited land, but it still is distant because Tromso is on the polar circle and you still have to sail for four days before you get to Svalbard. But Antarctica is a different planet. <laughs> if I can just go back to uh, Polar Quest 2021, you talked about drone mapping and that some of your colleagues were um, were mapping or using drones to to map places, but also saw on the website that you uh, try to monitor the presence of macroplastic pollution uh, using drone mapping. Yeah, so when we, in 2018 we did uh, um, microplastic sampling and we carried out the northernmost microplastic sampling on the edge of the polar ice shelf at 82 degrees north, and we even found a plastic visible to the naked eye. So the same scientists from uh, the CNR, the Italian National Research Council, they were interested this time because they saw, saw we had a lot of uh, drone activity to uh, fly uh, when we do when we fly uh, to map an area to also uh, fly over areas where there is both driftwood and plastic uh, because with driftwood uh, and also they asked us to take samples of the driftwood because that's uh, one of the ways to understand where the plastic comes from. Wherever we went, uh, the more remote areas, uh, there was always driftwood associated with plastic, which makes you suspect that they follow the same routes, which is the marine currents coming typically from the rivers in the Russian Arctic, Siberia, that end up in the Arctic Sea. And then they follow the currents and they accumulate on the beaches of the north coast of Svalbard. And so to prove that hypothesis, uh, studying them with drones would also give you the opportunity applying artificial intelligence on the photo, on the orthophotos that you, you do from above, you can 
you can uh, understand what kind of plastic they are made of. And so uh, you can easily get to the origin of this plastic. Also, we were taking photos of the objects and we actually collected some of the objects because they were so macroscopically uh, the result of our pollution that we couldn't help not collecting them and bring them home. One object in particular was a fuel tank with a, a text in Italian reading, non disperdere nell'ambiente, do not disperse in the environment. So where does it come from? It means that plastic in, from any place in the world can reach the Arctic. And then there, there's nobody to collect. And it will degrade, it will become microplastic, it will be either eaten by bears or end up in the uh, zooplankton, phytoplankton in the bottom of the sea or in the atmosphere and pollute everything because it's eternal. It doesn't, it doesn't disappear. It stays there in whatever forms. We also found a, a, a beach toy couple of beach toys, uh, and uh, and then lots more of plastic. So we collected the driftwood. Driftwood is also interesting because in Svalbard, of course, there, is, there are no trees, no plants. So this wood comes from somewhere where they grow. Uh, and so we, we, by looking at the rings in the, in, the, in the tree trunks, you can also date it. And, and see since when it's it's landed there, it, it has arrived there, how old it is. So all this data would be part of a, a, a big analysis uh, that combines all the, all the other data from the drones and uh, the orthophotos and the, and the samples that we collected to, to give you a full picture of where the pollution comes from. And uh, it's, it's nice that scientists uh, work in an inter interdisciplinary way to to get a better picture of what's happening there, because once you have a picture of what's happening there, you can study the smartest solution to stop polluting the Arctic. Could, the, could this mapping also help a uh, cleanup operation, for example, uh, eventually? Or is it... I don't think so. No, it's too far. You cannot go there to clean up. We did the cleanup. We did the cleanup. We didn't bring back all the samples, but we tried to recycle them in uh, inappropriate uh, recycling. In Nialazun, in they, they are very careful with recycling in the research station base, and uh, they have a very careful policy, so they, they took care of, of what we brought. But it's useless. The cleanup is useless because it will come back the next day. I mean, the, the, especially with uh, storms that are very common as of now for the entire winter season, you can clean up as much as you want, but uh, it will come back. If we don't stop polluting, it will get there. And it stops there because it's somehow in the way of a, a few currents, like the sea circulation makes it in such a way that it stops there. Yeah, and I think that's a key message as well. We can't clean up everything. We have to stop polluting. We have to stop the source. We have to find the root cause of, of that. Um, thank you so much for your time. Just one last question. Um, if you had to tell people, regular people who don't know anything about the Arctic, that they could do one thing uh, in their daily life uh, to, to protect the Arctic and to think about the Arctic, what would this be? Stop using single-use plastic. That's the easiest. Everybody can do that. Everybody can do that. Be careful. When you go to the supermarket, don't expect that they offer you this solution it's up to you 
to choose the least polluting packaging, the least polluting uh, way. I mean, I, I see that every day in the houses. Uh, they, they buy cosmetics, soap, um, cleaning products. There is an alternative. They can be, they can be bought uh, um, from a tap, for instance. You can fill the same container that is plastic, but then it stays with you for at least 10 years and you can refill it uh, at the shop. It's it's easy and it doesn't cost anyone anything. It's not a big sacrifice. Stop single plastic before the government imposes that on you. All right. Thank you so much for coming to the Arlick Institute Bookshelf podcast and for having this interview with me. It was really a pleasure. Thank you, Romain. It was a great pleasure for me and is one of the reasons why we do this. Blanks invites you to learn more about how you can play a part in the future of the Arctic during their 30th anniversary celebration. Rapid changes in rising temperatures, permafrost thaw, and sea ice melt will have lasting consequences for the planet. And PolarQuest and the Arctic Institute are leading the way in science and security research. Check out PolarQuest on social media to learn more about their recent voyage to collect environmental DNA from melting glaciers in Svalbard. Visit the Arctic Institute's website, thearcticinstitute.org, to learn more about how the circumpolar Arctic affects security in the region and beyond. <laughs>